Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Did you notice Dave Davis had this sling on? Anybody want to know what he did? <laughs> I do. I want to tell you. He had a skiing accident this week. Yeah, poor guy. Got a concussion, separated clavicle. I don't even know what a clavicle is, but it's separated. And so when you see him, give him a big squeeze. I, think. I know he's going to appreciate that so much. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're opening there, let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you just feel out of place? You know, like you don't belong, whether it's at school or at work or maybe it's at a social gathering or uh, even a foreign culture, whatever the context, whatever the reason. You know, you just don't seem to fit in. You feel, just feel different, feel strange. I'm guessing most of us have experienced those kind of displaced feelings at one point or another. And what's really interesting to me is that in a letter to the early church, the Apostle Peter says that as Christians, the sense of displacement, the this, this sense of not fitting in, is going to be part of our everyday life experience. To press the point, Peter refers to God's people as exiles, strangers, foreigners, aliens, and so this morning, we're launching a new study in which we're going to explore what Peter says makes us as Christians a little different, or in some cases, a lot different from the culture around us, and why it is we sometimes do feel like aliens living in the world. Before we get started with that, let me pray for us. Our Father, we're grateful for the sunshine today, a reminder of your goodness and how you care for us. And... Um, even though snow can be a burden at times, it also nourishes the land and nourishes us, and so we're grateful. Today, Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us to put aside uh, many of the things that distract us, uh, events going on today or perhaps this week, uh, and may we just have uh, these moments to be able to focus. I pray that you'd help us do that. Remove any influences that would distract, detract from this time together. Teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 19th, 64 AD, the city of Rome caught on fire. Uh, and with really narrow streets and large wooden structures that served as apartment buildings and, 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 and shops, Rome was like a tinderbox just waiting to, to ignite. And when it did, it burned for six days. Historians report that at one point during the fires, they, 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 they began to subside, but uh, mysteriously reignited with even greater intensity. So the fire in Rome was a really big deal. Uh, a big portion of the city was destroyed, uh, a lot of people died, and many were left homeless. And among the citizens of Rome, there was, there was little doubt who was responsible for this. Most people blamed the emperor, Nero. Why did they blame him? Well, everybody knew Nero wanted to rebuild Rome according to his own design. Uh, and he actually uh, eventually built a new palace over a portion of the city that burned. Many believed that was his intention all along. And so rumor had it that maybe the emperor didn't start the, the inferno, but he ordered soldiers to block firefighters and to reignite the flames when they started to fizzle out. And although no one could prove it, and no one dared try, Public hostility toward the emperor began to grow. Roman society was turning against him. But Nero was a pretty shrewd character. He realized what was happening. He knew that he needed somebody else to blame for the fire. And so he chose to blame Christians. Now, up until that point, Christianity was tolerated in Roman society. It was viewed as just a sect of, of, of Judaism. It had legal protection under the law. 
But stories circulated within Roman culture about these so-called Jesus followers. Some people said they were cannibals. I talked about how in their meetings they would eat the body and drink the blood of their leader. Some accused them of participating in sexual orgies because they claimed to especially love one another. Others accused them of sedition. They were more loyal to their God than the divine emperor of Rome. And so Nero seized on these misunderstandings and these prejudices, and he declared that it was Christians who set the, the city aflame. And he authorized severe punishment of them and the persecution of all of them. In 93 AD, Tacitus, a Roman historian, recorded how after the fire, just huge numbers of Christians were, uh, they suffered and, 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 and died these horrible deaths. And Tacitus writes this, he says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of people called Christians. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn apart by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose toward the sufferers, because they seemed not to be cut off for the public good, but were the victims of the ferocity of one man. Well, needless to say, uh, in late first century Rome, it was pretty tough to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, two significant things happened as a result of these historic events. Uh, First, uh, the persecution of Christians spread not only through the city of Rome, but throughout the entire empire. And two, uh, the Christian church grew because of it. The numbers of believers increased dramatically uh, over the, 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 the years, um, days and years ahead of uh, follow, or following uh, the fire. Part of the reason for that is pagan culture saw not only how these people were being treated, but how they responded to the treatment, how they, they, how they dealt with suffering and, and, and death and the incredible faith that they showed. And so many people decided they wanted what these Christians had. And many of them became followers of Jesus. Yet with persecution continuing, the question became, how were Christians supposed to keep going in the face of of relentless brutality uh, and suffering? And to answer the question, one of the most well-known leaders of the, the, uh, the church sat down and wrote a letter providing insight, encouragement, and, instructing, uh, and instruction regarding uh, faith in Jesus, the Christian life, and especially the reality of and nature of suffering. And his name was Peter. And what God inspired him to write has become known as the first letter of Peter. Now, here's the thing. Uh, today, uh, some 1,900 years uh, later, a great number of Christians still suffer severe persecution uh, around the world in places like uh, North Korea, Iran, Sudan. In fact, according to the latest research, twice as many Christians were killed for their faith in 2013 as in 2012. And so, in some respects, persecution of, of Christians is on the, uh, on the rise. But, you know, for us, let's be realistic. You know, for us in the room, most of us here... Um, are unlikely to ever be threatened with torture or death because of our faith. Now, that's not to say life is going to be easy, right? No matter how good life might seem at any given moment, there are always going to be, there are always going to be challenges, there are always going to be problems. Uh, we all face things like unemployment, chronic pain, broken relationships, terminal illness, wounding criticism, 
bankruptcy, disappointment, addiction, abuse, depression, loss, failure, rejection, and the list goes on. I mean, you know it, I know it, like it or not, life can be hard. And um, it can be painful for all of us at times, which is why the letter Peter wrote to Christians in the first century is still, is still relevant in, 20, in the 21st century. Because suffering remains an unfortunate reality of human existence. And what Peter offers is really more than just a few thoughts on how to cope with hard times. He provides practical instruction on how to live good, healthy, fulfilling, productive, God-honoring lives, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of a broken world. And so let's start off by looking at Peter's opening statement of his letter because it really sets the stage uh, for everything else. He opens this way in verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance." Notice the first thing that Peter does in his document is he identifies himself as the author, which is very common. It was a common writing style of the first century to do that. It's very similar to how we today use letterhead for business or official correspondence, right? We identify the name, the title, the address of a company or a person at the top of the page. It kind of gets things started. Well, essentially, that's what Peter does. He gives his name. He describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the Greek term that we translate apostle is the term apostolos, which is kind of weird, really, because essentially we've never translated the word. We've transliterated the Greek. We've taken a Greek word and we just made an English word with it, but we never really say what it means. And that can be a problem. But the Greek word apostolos literally meant uh, sent from, to be sent from. Uh, so it referred to someone who was a delegate, someone who was a messenger, Someone sent out with a mission. As most of us know, Peter was one of the original 12 apostles. You know, those individuals Jesus sent out as messengers of the good news of God's love and grace and offer of forgiveness and eternal life. And so Peter opens his letter by identifying himself uh, and using this title apostle to establish his authority. But keep in mind, Peter wasn't just one of the 12 apostles. He was, he was one of the three closest to Jesus. Uh, he, James, and John, were, they were part of Jesus' really, his inner circle. And Peter enjoyed that closeness um, he, because he was a guy who loved to be near the action. You know, he got really excited when Jesus would draw these huge crowds of listeners who would come to hear what he had to say. Uh, Peter loved it when the religious elite got challenged and when politicians were confronted. He loved it when Jesus, you know, healed the sick and raised the dead. I mean, Peter really loved that stuff, and he was passionate about it and what was happening because he was a very passionate guy. We know that one time Peter got so excited, uh, in faith he jumped out of a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Jesus miraculously helped him walk on water, or else he was going down under. So Peter saw and experienced some, some in, incredible things. There's no question about it. You know, he, he believed in Jesus, what Jesus was saying. He was committed to Jesus. But uh, Peter wasn't perfect. He didn't have it all together, which I certainly appreciate because like me, unlike all of us here, Peter was a flawed individual. I mean, at times he had some serious doubts. At times he was impulsive. At times he was dishonest. At times, his attitudes and his behaviors needed correction. 
If you remember, when Jesus was arrested and crucified in fear, um, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. He said, I don't know who he is. Never been with him. No. But in the end, you know, Peter did what we all should do when we fail God. He humbly accepted God's grace and forgiveness. And he learned from his mistakes. And then after that, he remained faithful to Jesus the rest of his life. Following the resurrection, Peter, Peter walked with Jesus. He talked with him. He ate with him. He heard Jesus give his followers the mission of going out into the world, making disciples. Um, Peter was there when the church was founded in Jerusalem. Uh, he gave the first, I guess you would say, official public sermon on the streets of Jerusalem. And he became a leader uh, in, teaching, uh, in teaching truth. Uh, eventually, he journeyed, Peter journeyed uh, throughout the Roman Empire, sharing the good news of God's love and grace with anybody who would listen. Uh, but during his travels, life got pretty hard for Peter. Uh, he knew what persecution was about. Uh, there were times he was beaten, uh, he was imprisoned, and ultimately he was martyred. He was executed because of his faith in Christ. He was crucified up, upside down. All that to say is, Peter the Apostle knew what he was talking of when, he, when writing Christians, not only about faith in general, but about faith in the midst of pain and suffering. And so he writes with authority. He writes with the voice of experience. Now, what about his audience? Well, notice Peter addresses the letter to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And basically, uh, those were places in Asia Minor. And so he was writing to Christians living in that region. He refers to them as exiles, which is a fascinating word. Uh, it's a Greek term that in, it literally means uh, an away from people. And although I would say exiles is an okay translation, uh, I think there are other English words that better reflect the nuance of the Greek. Words like strangers, foreigners, sojourners, aliens. In fact, Peter carries this alien theme, this alien idea throughout his entire letter as a way to emphasize Christian uniqueness. For example, in the early verses of chapter 1, Peter says we're, we're strangers, as Christians, we're strangers and aliens because he says when it, when it comes to this world, you know, we're just kind of passing through. It's not our permanent residence. And if you're a Christian, then you, you know what Peter's getting at, right? He's saying that as followers of Jesus, our true destination, our true home is heaven, not earth. Now, in my opinion, there are a lot of people today in our society who have a misunderstanding of heaven. Uh, many people view it as, as some, just some ethereal place you go to when you die. And a common assumption is uh, you just need to be good enough to get in. And that's what religion teaches. Religion says that you've got to just be good enough, you've got to earn your way so God will let you in. Uh, if you're good enough, God owes you that much. So you've got to be good. But, here, but you know, for me, it's, the question is, you know, what, at what point do you know you've been good enough? You know, what's the cutoff? I think those are pretty important questions, especially for those of us who aren't so good. Uh, others simply do away with the idea of goodness and suggest that everybody gets in, everybody goes to heaven. But to me, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, think about a person, think about a person who goes through life, who doesn't really care about God, doesn't give a rip what God says or thinks or... You know, it's just not important to him. Maybe he or she doesn't even believe God, is, God exists. Well, why would a person like that even want to go to heaven? Would they be content there? 
Would they enjoy hanging out with God's people, spending eternity living under divine authority, submitting to divine authority? Probably not. For that person, heaven would not be an eternally happy home. We'll say, well, yeah, okay, but there's no, there's no one that really thinks that way or believes that way or feels that way, but there, there, there are people like that. For example, well-known atheist Dan Barker, in his book entitled Godless, makes the point, he says, speaking for myself, even if the biblical heaven and hell exist, I would choose hell. Now, why would he say that? I don't know. What's been his experience that would cause him to feel that way? I have no idea. But should a person like Barker be forced into heaven? In some ways, that seems unreasonable, if not unfair. When considering this question, uh, in his book, The Great Divorce, well-known Christian author and former atheist C.S. Lewis writes, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. In other words, Lewis was saying, in the end, all God all God really does with people is give them what they wanted most throughout their lives, including freedom from himself. You know, for God to just leave them alone. And so he does. And what could be more fair than that? But for those who believe in God, those who've experienced his grace and his love in Christ, those who long to worship him and please him and be with him, you know, heaven isn't just where we we end up. It's not just where we want to go. It's where we belong. It's where we fit in. It's where we we feel comfortable. It's where we're going to be contented. Heaven is where we we are citizens. It's where we speak the language. We understand the culture. We have our friends, our family. We give our loyalty. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I like earth, you know. (laughs) Earth is okay, but it's not not us. Not, Not completely. We're always a little uncomfortable. We don't always quite fit in. We're strangers, sojourners. Aliens just passing through, yet at the same time we have local addresses. It was zip codes in Glen Ellen and Lombard and Carroll Stream and Wheaton and Villa Park and Elmhurst and Addison. The same was true with the, the, the first recipients of Peter's letter. You know, they were citizens uh, of heaven, temporary li- temporarily living in, in regions of, of, of modern Turkey, in, in these real places known as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia Bithynia. They were living there. But heaven was their true home, for they were believers in and followers of Jesus. And anyone who is becomes an eternally registered citizen of heaven rather than earth. But you know what else Peter says made them aliens? Uh, He says down in, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says to them, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners, that's the same word, foreigners, aliens, here in reverent fear. Translation, Peter's saying, he says to the church, you guys are strange because you live, with a, you live with a real, genuine, solemn respect for your creator, who is not merely a loving and gracious father, but also a righteous judge. And he says, see, a lot of the people in our world, they're not going to get that. They're, they're, that's, that they're not going to connect with that. They're, they're going to view your reverence for God as, as odd, as strange. Later in chapter 2, Peter writes, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In other words, he's saying to the church, you're strange because you recognize your sinful nature and its destructiveness. 
uh, to your life, to your relationships. And so you, you humbly acknowledge that as your creator, God himself knows what is right and what is true and what is good and what is healthy and what is best for you. And he wants to protect you uh, from the pain and the consequences of rebellion. And so rather than ignoring what God says, you respect him and you, you, you obey him because you want to you please him, not offend him. You want to honor this God who loves you, not disappoint him. And for the world, you know, that, that kind of reverence is, is weird. In chapter 4, Peter writes, he says to the church, he said, you know, you guys, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. He says they are surprised... In other words, they think it's strange that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. In other words, Peter is saying, here's the deal. As Christians, God is transforming your understanding of life and its meaning. Your understanding of what is important and what's not so important. What's right and what's wrong. What's beneficial, what's harmful, what's healthy, what's unhealthy. And so when you refuse to participate, you know, in those attitudes or activities that God says are destructive to your life, to your relationships, they're destructive, they're sinful, you refuse to do them. At some point, the world's going to, they're going to give you, the world's going to give you a hard time. People are going to say, what's the matter with you? Why are you so weird about this stuff? Why are you so strange? When your friends at school, if you're a student, your friends at school try to pressure you into doing some things that you, you just know are wrong and inappropriate. And as a Christian, you say, well, you know what? I'm not going to do that. They're going to say you're weird. And they're going to give you a hard time. And it's not going to be easy. You're going to feel alienated. At your job, when you, work, when you work hard and you work with integrity and you stand up for what is right, some of your coworkers or employers or employees, they're not, they're not going to understand and they're going to think you're peculiar. At times when you're tempted to cheat, or to steal, or to lie, or to slander or seek revenge, the voice of evil is going to whisper in your ear, hey man, don't be a chump. It's okay. Everybody's doing it. But if and when you turn away from that temptation, that same voice is going to say, you're a fool. Maybe you're an athlete, or maybe you're involved in coaching a sport, and so uh, as a player, maybe you, you spend a moment praying before the game, or as a coach, you make it clear to everyone around you that your athletes are more important to you than wins or losses. Trust me, that's going to make some teammates, some fans, or fellow coaches look at you and kind of label you as the religious person. They're going to refer to you, possibly refer to you as one of those Christian wimps. I've seen that happen. For couples who are in love, society and even some of your friends are going to tell you, hey, man, do what you want. Sleep together, live together. It's the cultural norm. You know, it's not, not to mention it's expedient. It's easy. But as a Christian, if you say, well, you know, it might be the norm, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. It doesn't make it healthy. It doesn't make it best. And if you choose to be countercultural, people are going to say you're crazy. You're abnormal. You're weird. When your neighbor notices how every Sunday you're gone for a chunk of the morning, and they find out you go to church, and you worship God, and you serve, and you give because you have this serious reverence and love for God, they may look at you and think you're kind of one of those religious wackos. 
when you're amazingly patient with people, kind and generous, our incredibly impatient, self-absorbed and greedy culture is going to look at you and say, who are you and what planet did you come from? Right? I mean, it's going to happen. At some point or another, it's going to happen. And when it does, that gnawing sense of not fitting in is going to, to intensify. And we all want to fit in. We all want to be accepted. And so you may feel a little discouraged about it, a little down about it, start feeling sorry for yourself, throw a little pity party. Whoa, oh, woe is me. I'm such a misfit. Here's my Ray K translation of verse 1. Peter says, you are a misfit. You, you, you're strangers. You're aliens. Accept it. Deal with it. And get over it. Because you are, God, you are God's people. You are his children. You are citizens of heaven. Men, women, students who revere God and who worship God, who value, who value what he values, understanding he has your best in mind. And so you try the best you can to obey what he says, knowing that he is a loving father with great wisdom, but he's also a righteous judge. I mean, look, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, as far as the world is concerned, you are weird. You're, you're alien. But at the same time, notice, even though you're strange, Peter makes the point that you're also special. How does he do that? Well, first notice he says, you're special because, verse 1, you are God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, Peter talks more about this idea later on in the letter, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch more about it when we get there. Suffice it to say at this point, Peter's, Peter's saying, he's telling his listeners, and he's, he's telling us, he's saying, understand, God looked at the world and decided he wanted you, you personally. He knew what he was doing from the get-go. I mean, he knew in advance what he was getting into when he decided he wanted you as his child, and he chose you anyway. As human beings, sometimes we make choices we regret. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'll hear people say, man, I never would have got married if I knew, I knew the kind of person I was marrying. Some people say, you know, I never would have had children if I knew how difficult parenting was going to be and, and uh, how my kids would turn out. Others say, you know, I would never have chosen this career or I never would have taken a certain job if I, if I knew in advance what was going to happen. It was a mistake. It was a bad decision. And the fact is we all make those. We make mistakes. We do. But God doesn't. He never second guesses his decisions. He never regrets a choice. Before you were born, God knew you. According to his sovereign will and design, he knew everything about you. He knew what would happen to you. He knew the kind of person you would become. He knew all of your problems and your potentials your involvements and idiosyncrasies, your victories and your failures, and he elected to love you anyway. As the apostle Paul put it when writing the early church, he said, God chose you before the foundation of the world. But he chose you not because of your goodness, but because of his grace. He chose you not because you're perfect, but because God is merciful. He chose you not because you're spiritual, but because he is sovereign. And it's not that you loved him first, mm -mm, but that he first loved you. See? You're special. We are special. Because God elected, he chose to embrace us as his people. And that reality should never, ever lead to arrogance, but to total humility. 
Because as we all know, we're messed up. We don't deserve it. We are broken men and women who need an awful lot of help and an awful lot of work. And so we're special because God's plan is to do just that, to help us, to heal us, to transform us. How? Peter says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God himself comes into our lives for the specific purpose of setting us apart and making us different. That's what the word sanctification means. It's just a big word that means set apart. And it's this ongoing supernatural process by which God makes us more and more like Jesus. In fact, again, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the early church, he said, those, those whom God chooses, he plans to conform to the image and likeness of his son. You know, when I met my wife, uh, Margie, I met her at a picnic that was set up for us. It was a blind date kind of deal. And uh, I was pretty anxious, so I got to this picnic early. I figured if I'm going to scope this out and run if I need to. You know what I'm saying? So uh, <laughs> I got there early, and I was, I was nervous. And then up the driveway comes this lovely Boston University co-ed driving a 1975 red MGB convertible. It was a great car. <laughs> Not that I loved her for the car, although it was a great car. And uh, we hit it off. Eventually, she got rid of the car. We got married anyway. I loved her anyway. <laughs> and over the years, there, there have been times when we've, we've thought about that car and we've kind of toyed with the idea of buying an old one, an old MGB, and, and restoring it. And uh, we'll see an ad every now and then that says, for sale, 1975 MGB, needs exhaust manifolds or rocker panels. I don't know what those things are. <laughs> or sometimes we'll just say, needs work which for me translates into it's going to take thousands of dollars in the next 10 years of your life to transform this beat-up wreck into the way that it ought to be. And so we've always decided, you know, it's not worth the cost. It's not worth the effort. And I was thinking about that this week. I got to tell you, man, I am glad God doesn't look at me like that. He doesn't look at me like some kind of broken-down piece of worthless junk. But instead, God looks at me, and he looks at you. He looks at all of us. And he loves us and he values us. And sure, I mean, he sees our problems, he sees our sins, he sees the, damages, the damage that we've done to our lives and to our relationships. He recognizes our brokenness, but he wants us anyway. And he commits his spirit to work in our lives, to set us apart, to make us more and more like his son, the way we ought to be. And by the way, we're not cheap to choose us, to buy us back, to fix us up, cost Jesus his life. His death on the cross was the price God paid to reclaim us and make us his own. And we're special because of that. The Father has chosen us, the Son has died for us, the Spirit's at work in our lives. And the plan, the plan is to set us apart for what? Peter says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, for some of us, this whole blood sprinkling thing seems a bit gruesome. But in the ancient world, it wasn't. Because in the ancient world, especially in the Old Testament, part of worshiping God often involved bringing a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice to the temple and offering it to God as something that was valuable to you. And sometimes the blood of that sacrifice was used to especially dedicate things or people. For example, according to Exodus 29, at one point Moses took the blood of a sacrifice and he sprinkled a little bit of it on his brother Aaron as a way of affirming and commissioning Aaron as a priest. 
a special servant of God. Well, Peter picks up on this idea of servanthood in chapter 2 of his letter when he says that as Christians, we're all part of a spiritual household, of a spiritual family. We're all part of this holy, set-apart priesthood. And by the sprinkling of Christ's blood, we are all commissioned and called and set apart for special service, offering ourselves in obedience to Jesus and to his cause in the world. And by the way, I don't, I'm not sure you noticed it. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But in case you missed it, in, in, in these first two verses, Peter lays out some pretty profound theology, yeah? The triune nature of God, the triune work of God, right? The Father elects, the Son atones and commissions, and the Spirit sanctifies. And what's the result of this? Peter says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor. And peace is this deep spiritual confidence that we can have even in the midst of suffering. And Peter's going to talk a lot about that, a lot about suffering. But what, what is his opening message to the church? Well, it seems simple to me. The message is you guys are weird. You're, you're strange. You're a peculiar people because as followers of Jesus, as Christians, you're citizens of heaven who don't always fit in here on earth. But a day will come when you will be at home and exist forever with your God who loves you. Until then, you are aliens. Understand it, accept it, deal with it. And the next time someone ridicules you for it, remember, you've been chosen by the grace of God, set apart by the Spirit, rescued and commissioned for service through the blood of the Son whose name is Jesus. Here's my Reiki summary. Although you, are, although you are aliens, you're strange, at the same time, you are special to God. Don't forget it. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, I think we would all uh, admit this morning that we, part of our humanness is, is, is wanting to be accepted. It's wanting to, wanting to fit in with the group. Um, wanting to feel part of the crowd. And that's just, that's just natural. Yet, as, as your people, the reality is we're not always going to fit in. There are going to be times when we seem out of place and we're going to feel that displacement because you've called us to be different. And we recognize that your word to us is all about what, it, what you know to be right and good and healthy for us, what's best for us. And as we, as we recognize that and understand that, then we want to listen to what you have to say. We want to accept your wisdom. We want to do our best to obey what you tell us because we know it's in our best interest. But sometimes we fail because we're sinfully broken. And uh, we, are in, we are in need of your grace. And we're grateful that you've extended it to us in Jesus. And as his people, um, we have been labeled as special to you. And, uh, and so this morning we recognize that, we, we embrace it, we celebrate it, and we come to worship you, our God, to sing, uh, to bring a sacrifice of, of, of praise and song, and, and to acknowledge that you are God and that we are willing to follow you because you know what's best. 
We offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I want you guys to understand that religion says, um, I'm going to earn my way, I'm going to be a good person, and then God owes me. Christianity says, I'm not good enough. God owes me nothing, but he graciously offers me everything. That's the difference. Religion is about saving yourself. Christianity is about God saving you. And uh, that's the difference. It's a major difference that people don't quite understand. Not only that, all the religions of the world have th different things to say about suffering and how we're to respond for it. Christianity alone, Christianity alone has its own view of suffering, and it's quite unique. And we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks because Peter addresses this issue of suffering throughout the letter, and he's going to start hitting on it next week. And uh, the reality is we all face suffering some, at some point or another, to some degree or another. And if we're not prepared ahead of time, it's going to be hard going through it. So we're going to talk about that next week, start talking about it anyway. And uh, maybe you're here this morning in your life, you're going through some difficulties in life. We have some of our prayer team people who are going to be down here following this service who are happy to talk with you and pray with you. Or maybe you just have so, so, something else you need to, to, to ask prayer for. Whatever, you can come down and, and talk with them, okay? In the meantime, I hope you come back next week. Have a great week. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, I pray that as we go, as we leave the building, uh, as your church, as your people, we, uh, we'll celebrate the fact that, yeah, we're strange, but we're special. That you love us, not because of our goodness, but because of your grace. Not because we're so spiritual, but because you're merciful. Not because we first loved you, but you first loved us. May your hand of peace and love and grace rest on your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>